Alright, let's go before the Lord pray and ask for his blessing. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again to honor you, to praise you as we go into your word, to seek, to learn, and understand the matter of Christ, what he has done for us, and how we relate to you in the light of that. We seek your understanding on this difficult topic of law and gospel, the distinctions and why they are important. We pray that you grant me ability to speak clearly and also ability to those who are hearing to hear exactly what you would have them to understand. We honor you. We praise you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone, again. <laughs> we are back to Romans chapter 3. And today we are going to work on just one verse. Again, Romans 3.31. And this is from the New King James. Romans 3.31, Apostle Paul says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. The matter of gospel teaching is not for people to go to church. <laughs> but a lot of people have reduced the matter of Christ to just going to church, going and meeting on a particular day, even though they are not telling the truth. The truth is no respecter of a day. We have to know the truth, believe the truth. And we cannot have assurance of salvation apart from knowing the truth. True faith gives assurance. True faith is based on the truth. And that which is false could never be the basis of assurance. That is why you see people being in the church for a long time, they still have no assurance of their salvation because they don't know the things that cause assurance. They don't know them. And a lot of the preachers are not preaching to give you assurance of salvation but to doubt your salvation by causing you to look back to yourself, to look back to your own performance. And we don't do that here. <laughs> we don't do that. I want you to be as free as you possibly can, as a bird on a tree. Okay? The goal is not for you to be with me. My goal is for you to have a clean conscience before God. That's the point. Okay? So may the Lord help us to that end. So this is our second installment on this matter of law and faith, of law and gospel, of Moses and Christ, of the old covenant and the new covenant, of Mount Sinai and Mount Calvary, those things represent something that you need to know. You need to know where you are. 
You need to know where you stand, on which mountain you are. Are you at Mount Sinai or are you at Mount Calvary? Mount Zion, is that the city that you belong? Those are the distinctions. And this discussion about law and gospel is very important because it relates to whether we are telling the truth on Christ or not. And we have observed that there's a desperate need to define terms in gospel teaching. A desperate need to make distinctions because the devil is always in the details. Where we don't make distinctions, there's going to be a lot of falsehood that is sneaked in in the name of, or it's in the Bible. (laughs) And as we have noted, many, especially in the Reformed camp, those who hold to covenantalism, those are things that we can talk about sometime, the distinctions between covenantalism and new covenant theology. But those who hold to covenantalism, who go by the Reformed, come to this verse in Romans 3.31 to try and prove the continuity, the continuity of Moses, to prove the continuity of Moses, in other words, the continuity of the law, the continuity of that covenant that Apostle Paul calls the letter that kills, the ministry of death and condemnation in Second Corinthians chapter 3. And they come and say, oh, that ministry is still binding on the conscience of the redeemed. But was Paul meaning by this verse, this Romans 3.31, was Paul speaking to the continuity of Moses even over the redeemed of the Lord or he was saying something different, spelling out the purpose, the function, of the law in redemption history. And I'm going to argue, as I've argued before, that Paul is speaking to the purpose of the law in redemption history. The purpose of the law in redemption history. And I believe that if we do not understand this verse this way, we are going to end up in the wrong space with respect to the believer's relationship to the law. But there is a relationship that you sustain to the law, depending on where you are. And this discussion of the purpose and continuity of the law would have been very interesting, especially for the Jews, above all people, because they culturally and religiously been invested in the law for many moons and months, hundreds and hundreds of years under the law, and they could not conceive of any dealings and approach to God apart from the law. 
So this is a shocker. Okay? So this gospel that Paul preached seemed to come and undo all that thinking and telling them that the law was not for salvation. The law did not help a sinner before God. In fact, by the deeds of the law, no flesh could be and will be justified before God because by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, that tells us that one of the functions of the law in redemptive history was to give the knowledge of sin. That is the level of discussion, to give the knowledge of sin. To give the knowledge that men and women are not that good. <laughs> as far as God sees them, they are sinners. And naturally, they do not meet that mark of God's standard by which eternal life is had, by which eternal life is given. That naturally men and women have no share in the righteousness of God. We are not a righteous people. We are not naturally holy. And this the Jews did not understand. They sincerely thought that there was something that one could do to earn eternal life. Hence the conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler and the scribe who came to him asking for what they could do here that in their question. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in each case, there was conversation about the law, about the purpose function of the law in attempt to answer that for a sinner. And in the case of the rich young ruler, he thought he had obeyed the law from his very youth, according to his own testimony. Like he was like from when he was in his diapers <laughs> and his sippy cup. Once I mentioned diaper, there has to be a sippy cup to follow with that too, you know. <laughs> so he says to Jesus, I have done all those commandments right from my youth. What am I still lacking? Why am I still lacking? See the confidence and the arrogance that he had before Jesus. Like, what am I still lacking? <laughs> but Jesus showed him that he was not telling the truth. He told him to go and sell all that he had and give it to the poor and then come and follow him. Come follow him. Because Jesus is the answer to the question of eternal life. And by that Jesus saying to the man, to the rich young ruler, you still lack one thing. And no matter how good you are, you're always going to lack the one thing. You're always going to lack the one thing. 
It is not like Jesus was saying, the rich young ruler, who was a Pharisee, he was a ruler of the synagogue, so that would mean that he was a Pharisee of sorts. Jesus was not saying, oh, you are 99%. You are lacking the 1%. So if you just come and follow me, I'll make up for the 1%. No, Jesus is saying you don't even have anything. Whatever you're looking for is only to be found in me. Follow me. I am the answer to that question of eternal life. Not to your idea of keeping the law. Okay? So the rich young ruler, like Saul, Apostle Paul before conversion, was rich in his self-righteousness. That's the point. According to the law, he was rich. That's why he came with such confidence before Jesus. Because he thought he was acing the law. So Jesus said, you go and sell your righteousness. That is, give it up. Repent from it. And people who naturally not repent from the riches of their righteousness because they've made a huge investment in it. And that is why the rich young ruler went away sad. Jesus told him to go throw away his righteousness, essentially. And many are still sad (laughs) when we tell them to go and sell their riches of self-righteousness and come and stand on the imputed righteousness of Christ alone, because that's what Jesus is teaching. That if the question to your inheritance of eternal life is to be answered, to God's satisfaction is going to come only one way, by his own righteousness imputed to a sinner. And to the scribe, in Luke 10, Jesus told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have Two wonderful messages on both texts. He told him the parable of the Good Samaritan, a very popular parable, very well known even by the majority of unbelievers. They know about the Good Samaritan, but they don't understand it. But Jesus gave the parable to answer a question of how to inherit eternal life. The scribe thought that it was still possible for him to do something, especially with the law. And Jesus says, well, it's too late for one born in Adam to be made righteous by law-keeping as to inherit eternal life because the law by its nature cannot help a sinner who is already beaten down by the robbers. That is sin and the devil. That's what the robbers stand for in that parable. The sinner, this scribe, who thought was doing the law, Jesus says, no, you are already so beaten. It's too late. And guess what? Left naked. You have no righteousness at all. And thus, the only way for a sinner in that condition, for them to inherit eternal life, was if someone of the stature 
of a Samaritan who is a despised man, but a very good man, a very compassionate man, comes the way of the sinner and serves them freely. And that good Samaritan was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the good Samaritan. There's no other. He is the compassionate man who was on a journey. He found sinners lying on the road, naked, beaten, and he clothes them, he takes them to the inn, he pays for everything for them to stay at the inn, and says, whatever is left unpaid, put it on my church, to say, all of salvation is of Christ. Okay? So the law demonstrated its inability and unwillingness to help a sinner by the testimony of the Levite and the priest. If you recall, there were two people who went by before the Good Samaritan, the Levite representing the law, the priest representing the law, which is testimony. That's a dual testimony of the law. Okay? By the law, things are established by two witnesses. So you have the Levite and the the priests passing by, they saw the man lying on the ground and then they passed on on the other side. They did not offer to help. And, beloved, that is one of the clearest examples in the Bible in which the Lord illustrated the helplessness of a sinner and the inability of the law to help a sinner like you to say it's too late for you to talk about law keeping. Your condition does not allow for you to deal with the law. The law has no help for you. It just sees you lying and it walks on by. Okay? Only grace stops by. Only the good Samaritan stops by and picks up the sinner, dresses them up, and takes care of all their needs. So the law is not of grace. You read some reformed writers who say, oh, the law is of grace. No, that's a lie. The law is not of grace. The law is for condemnation. Christ is he who brings grace. So it is needful that we make the proper law and gospel distinctions. We have to make the proper law and gospel distinctions. But then, these stories, unfortunately, are not understood by many as gospel stories. And that is why we continue to do battle with many people who claim to be doing the law because they do not know or understand the things they claim to. We can prove this doctrine of law and gospel anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't matter where you take me. From Genesis chapter 1, we can prove it. (laughs) Because God has been consistent. Consistently making the distinction in types and shadows and also in very explicit statements about the distinction of law and gospel. So the law was given to give the knowledge of sin and our inability to obey it. Let's go to Luke 16, 
verse 16. Luke 16 and 16. The Lord Jesus said, The law and the prophets were until John. That's John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. You're going to have different slight variations of that depending on whether you're reading from Luke or Matthew. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said. Because John was a prophet and a Levite. His father, Zechariah, was a priest. So which means John the Baptist was a mediator of the law. He also was a priest. And the Lord said that whole institution ended with John the Baptist because he represented the whole Old Testament, the prophets, and the law. Essentially, it ended with the beheading of John the Baptist by Herod. The beheading of John was God preaching the end of the law because as John himself said, he must decrease and Christ must increase. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. John the Baptist, the Lord does not have the bride. The bride belongs to Christ. And so John has to die. And many people preach a whole sermon doing a character assassination of Herod and miss the point. <laughs> Herod was just an instrument of God to preach the end of the law and the prophets because the Christ of whom was being testified had come. Okay? So that means Christ Jesus stands all alone apart from Moses. Jesus is not standing with Moses, seeking help from Moses. If Jesus is not standing with Moses, then the church is not standing with Moses either. Let us hear if that is true. Let's go to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 1 to 8. Matthew records and says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So Jesus is unveiling his glory that was hidden to their eyes. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It's so wonderful. <laughs> it's just so good to witness this. What a show. Let us, if you wish, if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And we'll just sleep outside. We just sleep outside. We just 
make a tabernacle, bring some tools with us. Peter, what is Peter thinking? Peter wanted to build three tabernacles to equate the law and the prophets with Christ. One, two, three. One tabernacle for the law, one tabernacle for the prophets, another tabernacle for Jesus. Equate them and have a more complete picture. That's the theology of Peter. Let us hear if God agreed with that theology. Verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed, sorry, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. While Peter was still speaking, still delivering his sermon, God came and interrupted him, took the mic out of his hand because he didn't know what he was talking about. Like many people, God overshadowed them. He overshadowed Elijah and Moses. That is, the law and the prophets. Elijah represents the prophets. And Moses, representing the law, overshadowed in the face of Christ. And what did God say? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God is saying, we ought to listen to the testimony of the son. Because the son is the full revelation of what anybody needs to know about God and about what anybody needs to know about salvation. It's all in the Son. God has spoken in these last days by one who is Son by whom he created the whole worlds, by whom he holds all things, holds all things by the word of his power, which Son after he had made an end to the purification of sin, he sat down. So God is well pleased in who? That's a good question to ask. Is it in Moses or is it in Elijah or is it in Moses and Elijah? Is it in the law and the prophets? That's the question. No. He said, he is well pleased with the Son, the Lord Jesus. And God says, hear him, listen to him, listen to what the Son is saying. But are people listening to the Son? No, they are not. What are they doing? They've come up with some very clever ways, theological ways, to Photoshop Moses. <laughs> They love to Photoshop Moses and tie him back with Christ. Yeah? Even though he has been overshadowed. Because if something has been overshadowed, it means it is out of view. So, how then are people still seeing Moses if he has been overshadowed? Yeah? It's four stage. Verse 6. Still in, do you say Matthew? 
17. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. If underline verse 6, verse 8. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Who did the disciples see after they had lifted up their eyes? They saw no one but Jesus only. The Holy Spirit wants you to know that when you lift up your eyes of understanding, you should see Jesus only. Not in the company of Moses and Elijah. You see Jesus only. In the story of the woman caught in adultery, in John chapter 8, what happened at the end of the story? After all the accusations that had been brought against her before Jesus, for Jesus to condemn her, in verse 8, so in verse 9 of John 8, we have a wonderful message on that. John says, Then those who had it, those who had the defense of Jesus to justify the woman from a sin, they had what Jesus said. And Jesus said, Well, let me see he who has no sin, who is progressively sanctified. From their sin, let me see them cast their first stone and then we'll see what to do with that. <laughs> then those who had it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. That's all we're saying. In all these proclamations of law and gospel, Christ is left alone. The people who came to condemn the woman, the woman, were representatives of the law because they came with the testimony of the law against the woman and said, Moses, in the scriptures, say, such a one must be stoned, which means all these people who were gathered around the woman were bringing the testimony of the Lord. They represented the law against a sinner. The law says stones should be thrown to condemn because that's what the stone represents. People still don't get it. The stones that they're talking about are the tablets of stone. What do they do? They condemn all those who have been caught in sin. And the only way out of that is if Jesus stands up and defends them and says, neither do I condemn you. And so one by one, they walked away from the woman and from Jesus, from the list of them, or from the greatest of them to the least of them, and that to say, from the greatest of the commandments that condemn to the least of the commandments 
they all go away, they retract, they stop the accusation once Christ is standing for you. Jesus left alone with the woman. And that woman was a picture of the church of Christ. And we are saying that if we lift up our eyes as did Peter, James, and John with understanding of law and gospel, we should see no one but Jesus only. And if Jesus has company with him, it's going to be his church. It's going to be that woman. It's going to be the bride. But someone will come and say, but the Westminster Confession of Faith says that's the problem. The Westminster Confession cannot give you that kind of understanding that we just got. It's not coming from that. It's coming from the fact that the guys who wrote it did not know what to do with the law. They did not know what to do with the law. The Westminster cannot help you with the understanding of this distinction. I want you to see Jesus only when you lift up your eyes. I want you to remain in the company of Christ alone who defended you from all your sins. That's all what we are saying. So, going back to our Romans teaching, Apostle Paul is theologically working the same teaching, working the same understanding and saying, the law had a purpose. Who brought the woman to Jesus? It was those people who brought the testimony of Moses against the woman. It is the law that brought the woman to Jesus. And that tells you the function of the law. Is the tutor. Is the disciplinarian. Okay? So if we understand the purpose of the law, then we understand Christ aright and we believe the gospel correctly. The law is no friend of a sinner. Grace alone is friend to someone like you and I. And the last time I checked, we were all sinners in that we actually really and truly transgress the law, even this very day, this hour, this minute, many of those who call themselves law keepers are busy sinning against God <laughs> in word, thought, and deed. You see, people minimize the, de the definition of sin when they reduce it only to the doing of things. But the proper understanding of sin is lacking in word, thoughts, and deed. So if you measure yourself by just one dimension, you're going to think, oh man, I'm progressing, I'm being righteous because I don't go clubbing anymore. And yet, it's word, thought, and deed. Okay. So in Romans, Paul has introduced this matter this matter of an obedience that is apart from the law is a very revolutionary teaching, especially to the Jews. 
an obedience to faith, an obedience where the sinner does nothing to be saved, an obedience to the gospel of God. And in this gospel, in the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, a righteousness that is apart from the law, a righteousness that has been witnessed by the law and the prophets. What did Moses and Elijah come to do? They came to witness. They came representing the law and the prophets to witness of the righteousness of God, which is Christ himself. That's what they were doing. That's what Paul is saying, that the law and the prophets witness the righteousness of God. They testify of the person and work of Christ. But once they have finished that work, they must decrease, they must be overshadowed, they must be retired. So the gospel of Christ introduces us to the righteousness which is apart from the law. It is apart from your own obedience to the law. It is apart from human faithfulness or obedience to God. It is through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. This righteousness, that is your salvation, is through the faithfulness of another person. Because human faithfulness to the Lord does not and cannot accomplish God's righteousness. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of that righteousness. <laughs> and there's absolutely no one in this state who can claim to be keeping the law. Those are just religious lies. No one is keeping the law. Christ alone kept the law. So the righteousness of God is through the faithfulness of Christ alone. And it is a righteousness that has an obedience. But the obedience of another who is not shown. And thank God it is not Sean's righteousness because he would have no hope whatsoever. Knowing Sean, and he knows himself better than anybody else, he will tell you that. Thank God for the righteousness of Christ. Okay? So Christ in his faithfulness, obeying God in righteousness, even to the death of the cross. That is the righteousness that God has given you. That is the righteousness of the gospel. And so the death of Christ on the cross is the redemption that is in Christ. The death of Christ, in other words, was the payment to God on your behalf that set free sinners from the condemnation of the law, from the condemnation of sin, which the law gave knowledge of. And redemption, we love to define terms. Redemption means setting free 
by way of ransom payment, setting free by way of a ransom payment. That's what the death of Christ was. So you see that by this righteousness of Christ, God freely declares sinners as righteous before him. He declares them, he sees them as righteous apart from their own obedience. And the scandal of it is that they are righteous even on their very worst day. (laughs) Their worst day, not of having a headache, but of sin. On your very worst day of sin, God says, okay, it is righteous. Like what? Yes, she is righteous. That's the scandal. And men and women cannot deal with that. Okay? So what the gospel does is it shifts the grounds of justification from your own obedience and puts the responsibility and the burden of it on another person. And that person who has taken that responsibility on your behalf is Christ Jesus. So faith then does not cause your righteousness. It is looking to your righteousness. True faith is looking to the one who stood for you and saying, oh, Jesus is enough for me. Jesus is my true law keeper. Whatever the Lord demanded of me, he did. Okay? But now, to declare sinner as righteous apart from their own goodness or obedience is a serious scandal. It's scandalous. It's very offensive. Especially from people who think themselves to be very good people. They do not like that kind of teaching. To them, it is an anti-law idea. It's an antinomian idea to call someone righteous who is caught in sin, who is battling with one type of sin or another, especially the one that they think they are not doing. It's not that they're not sinning. They are sinning. It's just that the other person is not doing the things that they are considering a sin. So those who claim that we are antinomians say so. Not because they care that much for Jesus than us. Or that they are actually keeping the law as they claim. Not at all. They just want for someone to talk about their own obedience in the place of the obedience of Christ. But we do not do that here. We do not talk about our own obedience. We only talk about the obedience of another because that's the basis of the forgiveness of our sins. That is the basis of our standing before God. So we boast only in the cross of Christ. 
And if that offends anyone, which I know it does, I do not care. <laughs> I'll be so happy to increase the offense. Lord, help me increase the offense. Because we have to decrease. Our theology has to cause us to decrease. The more that we see the perfection of Christ, we have to see our own ugliness in the face of Christ. Yeah? We have to decrease. So, true believers ought to call their own righteousness loss and dung and flush it down the toilet with a lot of water as did Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Because if you look at the testament of Paul, he was more righteous than us. Apostle Paul, before he became Apostle Paul, he really tried to keep the law. So much that he even considered his own righteousness before the law as blameless. You and I could never say that for a minute. He tried. He grew up under this thing. He was devoted to this thing. To the level of killing Christians. That's how committed he was to keeping the law. Let's hear his testimony. Part of it in Philippians 3. Philippians 3. And we begin at 6 to 9. Philippians 3, 6 to 9. And in this section, I always love to read from the NET or the KJV. But the NET is easy to read for me, so I'll go that way. But this one, Paul says from verse 6 of Philippians 3. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, or according to the law, I was blameless. <laughs> but these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. All that which I thought would give me an advantage before God, I have determined to be all liabilities. Those things are not assets. They are not helpful to me. My own righteousness? No, no, no. My being a Jew? No, 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 no. My circumcision? No, no, no. None of that helps me. It's actually a liability for me. It gets in the way. My own righteousness gets in the way of getting to Christ. So I have to consider it loss. That's it. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities. <laughs> I regard all things that respect me, that respect me and what I do. When I have understood Christ and what Christ means, and then I look in my own resume, my five-page resume of good works, of my righteousness, oh, it's a liability. It's a liability. There's nothing to talk about. Compared, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value. See the comparison. The far greater value. Well, if it's greater value, why do you have to put far? It's emphasis. Paul is trying to accentuate, to increase the value in our eyes of who Christ is 
and what he has done compared to who we are. Compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, indeed, I regard them as done, that I may gain Christ. So to gain Christ, one has to consider their own righteousness as done. And what you do with done, uh, in Africa they would use it for cooking, which means burning it, or you flush it. <laughs> That's only good use for done. My righteousness, Paul says, flush it, use it for cooking, if you can. <laughs> that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness that comes from God, not from you. That is, in fact, based on Christ's faithfulness. That's clear teaching. That's, see the distinction that Paul is making. He is having the category of the law on one side and his righteousness, and he calls that whole category liabilities. Done, loss, to be flushed. And then there's a righteousness that is coming from God by Christ, and that is through faith, and that's the righteousness that Paul has put his confidence in. So it is all about the righteousness that comes by the faithfulness of Christ, not our faithfulness. And when we get to that point of flashing things, we do not look back to Moses for anything. And that's what Paul is saying. We do not try to bring back what we have flushed down the toilet, like put some long snack and try to retrieve it. No. <laughs> That's exactly much of the preaching on law. We're getting this rotor rotor guys. <laughs> I'm going to have to develop that because it's so good. Rotor rotor theology. <laughs> so the Jew has had these declarations from Paul. You see, Paul was bringing the offense of the gospel. And so the natural question to all that Paul is saying would be then from the Jew, especially. Romans 3, that one. If what you are saying is true, do we then make void the law through faith? Because you called your righteousness before the law Done. Oh, one time it was blameless, now it's done. <laughs> so what do we do with the law? Paul says it may never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What is that saying? It sounds confusing to me. What is Paul saying by that question? Paul is saying the law had a function, it had a purpose. And the law, in this purpose, had an expiration date. That is why the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. And from last week's message in Galatians 3, we also learned about the kid 
who was under the tutor, the pedagogos, until they were graduated at 14. And we, as those in Christ, have, are no longer, are no longer under the tutor. So that is speaking to a duration, an expression that you come to a certain point, you come to Jesus, that's the end of the tutor's work. Okay? So faith does not void the purpose of the Lord. The discussion is on purpose of the law, not continuity. You see? It's the purpose. Faith does not nullify the purpose of the law. Rather, it establishes that righteousness that is in the gospel. Okay? The context of the theology of Romans, especially in this section, does not allow for us to come up with continuity as the argument. Purpose of the law is what is being discussed. Okay? In the historical context of salvation, in redemptive history. Okay? So, in that context, the gospel here and now, in the unfolding history of salvation, a different kind of righteousness, which is apart from the law, has been revealed, has come by the person of Christ. And how could there be a righteousness apart from the law? Because if the law is not for righteousness, what do you need for? It's a good question. It is not for righteousness. But it has a purpose. And God has given us the teaching of the purpose. And this was shocking. As I said, this was very shocking to the Jews. Because to them, the law was given for righteousness. So they thought moralism was righteousness before God. That is why the Pharisee in Luke 18 came and talked about his own righteousness and said, well, I'm not like these other sinners. I've been married to my wife for 75 years. <laughs> Never committed adultery. I don't steal. I don't covet things. I don't take things by force. I'm not like this tax collector right here, stealing money. Yeah. But the gospel says, only through faith in Christ, this Christ whom the Jews despise, is found the righteousness that is in the law, which Christ alone was obedient to. So the law had righteousness in it. But that righteousness cannot be found from Martin trying to do it. It is the righteousness that is found in Christ doing it. So in Galatians 3, as we learned, there's a more extensive treatment of it that we did in the previous message, Rome number 12. But this is what he said, this is what Apostle Paul said, in respect of the same objections, 
to the gospel of justification through faith. Because these objections and questions are arising because of the justification that is only by grace. Justification by faith alone. That's why the objections are there. Okay? So, in Galatians 3, verse 21, on the same matter of justification and the function of the law, Paul asks and says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. You see, it's the same word over and over. It doesn't matter if you're in Romans or in Galatians. With respect to this issue, Paul consistently answers it the same way. Certainly not. May never be, or God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So the law is not against the promises of God. Why? Because God never meant to give life or to bless anyone by their law keeping. God does not bless anyone based on their own law keeping because there's none who is keeping the law. So, according to Paul in Galatians 3, the law by its nature, given how God delivered delivered it on Mount Sinai through the agents of angels, was signifying that the law is inferior to Christ. Okay? And thus could never bring such things as are only found in him. Angels do not bring blessing. So the very fact that the angels were the mediators in the giving of the law meant that you could never get blessing from the law. Because the whole matter of blessing was by promise in Christ who is the descendant of Abraham. Okay? So Paul in Galatians 3 says the law was given to imprison sinners so that the promise of salvation to them would come by the faithfulness of Christ and that through faith. So you see the connection. The law had a function to imprison, but it was just not imprisoning just to do it. It was purposefully imprisoning men and women to hopelessness so that the promise out of that dungeon the promise out of that prison would only come to them by Christ Jesus. When they see him, they say, this is our Savior. That's the function of the law. So the law was added because of transgressions till the arrival of the descendant of Abraham, who is Christ, to whom the promise of salvation was given. So the promise of salvation was given to Christ to be the mediator of it, which means he's the one responsible for the giving of it, for the doing of it, for the making sure that Sister Deb gets it. It's not a responsibility. People talk but oh yeah, but God is suffering, but we are responsible. Responsible for what? 
<laughs> to cause your own faith? To cause your own repentance? No. To bring yourself to God? No. Those are the responsibilities of Christ. He is the mediator. He is the bringer. He is the cause of your coming to God. Okay, it's about Christ. So, the lost function in that respect was to imprison sinners and to increase their sin and to be the disciplinarian, the tutor, the pedagogus until the arrival of Christ. And if we minimize that language of the until the arrival of Christ, we end up with a false gospel testimony. Okay, so the arrival of Christ ushered in a different and better way to relate to God. Faith is the better way to relate to God. And faith and law are not two legitimate ways for a sinner to relate to God. You do not relate to God by faith and law. You relate to God by faith alone. The law is for a contrary testimony. The law is in its own category. The law is works righteousness. That's what the law means. The law means you have to keep it. You cannot go through a red traffic light. That's what the law does. And if you do, you're in serious trouble. It is works. Righteousness. And by its deeds, none is seen by God as righteous. So we get attacked by people who are unrighteous in themselves, who claim to be doing the law, but they are lying to themselves the law, as we shall develop in the few chapters to come, belongs in the same category with Adam. If you can make some table, Adam and Christ, you're going to see that in the column of Adam, you're going to find law. You're going to find sin, death, condemnation. In the second column, you're going to find Christ. You're going to find faith. You're going to find life, promise, righteousness, justification, adoption, eternal life. Christ is so better. <laughs> Christ. Christ is so better. You see, you need to make these categories. That's how you really come to the knowledge of your salvation and say, okay, I'm so sad. <laughs> There's no way I'm messing this up. There's no way I'm messing this up. So if Paul meant by Romans 3, verse 31, this will be our last teaching on Romans 3, 31. We'll refer to it later in the chapters to come. But I'm notorious for beating things up. Okay. Because in the future, someone is going to come and try to accuse us of things that we did not say. So we're going to say as much as we can say about the matter. 
okay and bring clarity the point is to help you with the understanding okay so if paul meant by romans 3 verse 31 that the believer is still under the law of moses then he could not have been consistent in his reasoning in the writing of the book of romans like in romans 6 and 7 Hear what he says in Romans 6. Let's go to Romans 6, verse 14 and 15. Because you have to look at these things. Paul cannot say one thing and then turn around and say another thing. If Paul means that we are under the law in Romans 3.31, then he should not have Romans 6.14 and 15. For him to be consistent. This is what he says. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Paul says, sin shall not have dominion over the redeemed to condemn them. Why? Paul is not saying, verse 14, please. Paul is not saying that sin shall not have dominion over you so as to do it. Paul is not saying you are not seeing anymore. That's not what verse 14 is saying. That's a much bigger theological statement. We shall expound more on it when we get to Romans 6. But he gives the reason why sin shall not have dominion. The dominion of sin is in its power to condemn. Did he say, sin shall not have dominion over you because you are now good law keepers? No. This is what he says. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. You will never hear that from these guys. You will never hear that. They will never hear that. They will never quote this. What is the implication? The implication is that the law brings back dominion. It brings one under the power of sin. Grace sets free from the dominion of sin and law and their condemnation. And see that it is not law and grace. Paul is purposefully making a distinction. If you are under this, then you are not under the other thing. Okay? If you are a US citizen, then you are not a citizen of North Korea. That's clear teaching. There's nothing confusing about that. If you are a US citizen, then you don't hold a North Korean passport. But they want you to hold a North Korean passport. And a US citizen... Yes, passport. So the redeemed are not under the law, but are under grace. And is that an anti-law idea? Because that's how people come and accuse us of being under law, just because they're making the distinction to say the believer is not under the law because they are under grace. And someone says, oh, you guys hate the law. In what way am I hating the law? I'm just making the distinction. For many, this is an anti-law idea. They do not like such statements. 
Because to them, it leaves people room to sin all they want. That's what they say. Now people are going to sin all they want. You have to give them law. But people are already sinning all they want anyway. Okay. <laughs> Not because of Christ or because of grace, but because they are sinners. And sinners sin. That's what they do. Okay? So they never come and talk about these statements because they go against their confession of faith. Okay? These statements leave the law, the statements that they make, they leave the law at the center of things and not Christ at the center. Their emphasis is on law. Our emphasis is on Christ. Christ is the center. Because as Romans 8 is going to tell us, Christ, no, it's Romans 10, Christ is the goal, is the end of the law for righteousness. Yeah? So Christ is the end. But you see the same kind of argumentation or rhetorical device employed in Romans 6, verse 15, as in Romans 3, verse 31, is the same rhetorical device that Paul is employing. I'm purposefully going slow, but this is a very important message. Okay? It's a very important message. Paul says in Romans 6.15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? What is the fundamental idea or assumption in that question? It is that the believer is not under the law of Moses. Otherwise, the question would not have arisen. So the objection would then be, if that is true, if it is true that I am saved completely without my obedience, shall we then go hog wild? Paul says no. That is not the correct thinking. But his solution to that question is not more law. Paul does not say, oh, I'm going to give you more Moses to contain this message and throttle and govern the, like, you have some trucks or moors. They have engines that have ability to go 40 miles per hour, but they put a governor to reduce the speed to maybe 10 miles an hour. And Paul does not use the law as a governor of speed, he uses grace as the governor of speed. <laughs> you see? Now we'll go to Romans 7, and that is where we'll end our message. And we go there to establish the purpose of the law from Paul's theological thinking as a continuation of Paul's theological thinking from verse, from verse 31 of Romans 3 and coming through to Romans 6. Okay? And even overall, the theology of Paul is going to be 
in some way be found in Romans 7, his understanding of the law and its relationship to the redeemed. And that should help us understand what he is saying or not saying in Romans 3.31. Okay. Because Romans 3.31 is not a stand-alone text. Paul is weaving. You know, like the women who weave things, whatever they do, they can, when they are weaving, I've crocheting, they'll make one part. Let's say they're making like uh, some kind of sweater. They'll do the front, then they'll do the back, and then they'll do the arms, and then they'll put everything together in stages. Paul is crocheting his theology of the law. He introduces the idea. It's incomplete. He leaves it. He goes and develops another, and then he connects the pieces. And we have to do that. And I don't want to do too many pieces of part one, part two, part three, part four, part five, because people end up not listening beyond part three. So we're going to have to join the pieces in one message. <laughs> so Romans 3.31 is not a standalone text. It's just not an arm by itself. It is connected to other pieces. So, in Romans 7, Paul argues the believer's relation to the law. So that will help us to understand whether Paul is saying the law is continuing to bind on you or not. The believer's relation to the law and also the purpose of the law. Romans 7, 1-6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Principle number one of the law, the law has dominion or power over a person if that person is still alive to it. The police officer with any sense cannot bring a ticket to the grave of a dead person. And said, well, you didn't pay your ticket. No, it's not going to work. That ticket is just going to get rained on and be eaten by whatever you eat it. Termites. <laughs> That's principle number one of the law. It only has power over the person when they live. So dominion to control and condemn them for their sinful actions, especially the latter. And Paul says this is addressed to those who know the law, those who understand how the law actually works. Because many talk law who do not know or understand the real matter of the law. So Paul, please teach us the proper understanding then of law in respect of the gospel. Verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to a husband as long as... is bound by the law to a husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies... She is released from the law of her husband. A married woman and her husband is bound and has been bound to him as long as he remains alive. Katie, that's what happened a year ago. You bound yourself. Okay? You are bound. <laughs> that is law principle number two. You are bound. 
you're bound to the terms of that contract. Okay? The woman is under contractual agreements to remain with him as long as the husband lives. Okay, that's point number two. Let's go to verse three. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Two things. If while her husband is alive, Caitlin, she goes and marries another man, she would have transgressed the law of marriage and has become an adulteress. Even Madonna knows that. Okay. That is law principle number three. Anyone who is married and goes to get married to another is an adulteress or an adulterer in that regard. But then, if her husband dies, then she has been set free from the law of her husband. That is law principle number four. She has been set free. She is not under contract to her husband. She does not have any more conditions to fulfill for her husband. And then she is free to marry another man. She is free to marry another man without being called an adulteress. See that clause of being set free from the former marriage. There is a setting free from the former marriage that they may be married Legally to another man. See that transition. And if our gospel is lacking that freedom of being set free from Moses that we may be married to Christ because Christ is not going to get married to someone who is already married. Because Christ knows the law. Okay? He's not going to do that. So when Christ comes he has to cause a divorce on legal terms. There has to be a divorce. Because Christ is not going to share a wife, bride with another dude. It's not going to happen. <laughs> That's why it was Jesus and that woman alone. So what then happens in respect of the gospel? So this was an example that Paul took from human experience, from our everyday life experience. Now he applies it to the gospel and says, listen, verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Paul realizes that people want to get married. So he's using that to connect the pieces theologically. The brethren, the redeemed, the true believers have become what? Paul says, does he say the redeemed are alive to the law or they become dead to the law? Because if you are under the law, then you are alive to it. 
But if you are in Christ, you are dead to it. What does the text say? We have become dead. We also have become dead to the law. And dead to the law means we have no more contractual obligations to it as the husband. So the law there is pictured as a husband. And Christ is another husband. So we have two husbands. And you have to die to the one. And how did we die to the one husband? Through the body of Christ. In other words, through the death of Christ. The death of Christ then is what ended the marriage between the redeemed and the law. If you are in Christ, you could not be married to Moses. That's clear teaching. There's no way. They can bring 500 pages of confession of faith. You're not going to take me away from this. This is clear teaching. So we have become dead to the Lord that we may be married to Christ. In other words, one cannot be married to both Moses and Christ because in the thinking of Romans 7, that is committing adultery. And yet, what we hear from men and women, they want to get you back to Moses, go back to Mount Sinai, and say, oh, but it is the moral law. But it is the very moral law that Paul is talking about. Oh, it's the Ten Commandments. These are the very law that we died to in the death of Christ, that we may be married to Christ. If your former husband has died, you are under the power and instruction of the new husband, and you don't go to his grave and ask if he wants chicken noodles for dinner tonight. Okay? That's essentially what people are doing. They're going to the grave of Moses and asking what they should cook. Yeah? And so those who accuse us as antinomians are bringing baseless and useless and foolish arguments. They are more emotional arguments than they are theological and scriptural arguments. Verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. The flesh and the law work together. When you are in the flesh means when you are under the law. Everyone who is under the law is in the flesh. Okay? So that relationship always produces, bears fruit unto death, which means to condemnation. The law arouses sinful passions in our members to bring about death. And people will sincerely say, okay, I'm doing the law. But God says, if you really are thinking law, what's going to happen to you is it's going to condemn you sooner than later. <laughs> it's going to condemn you. You're going to break it sooner than later. Because that's the function of the law. That is what it was given to do, and it does it so very well. And that is how the law is not made void through faith. Because the law 
still brings death to anyone who tries to meddle with it. You kill him. Okay? So the faith does not make the law useless. It confirms that the claims in the law are righteous. That the sinner, the person who sins, must surely die. Okay? So only that is confirmed and established through faith. Verse 6, Romans 7. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The believer has been set free from the law by way of death, the death of Christ, in union with Christ. And this was so that they would serve God in the newness of the spirit, which means through the gospel, you serve God through faith in Christ and not in the oldness of the letter. Do you see the distinction? The newness and the oldness. You can't mix the newness and the oldness just as you cannot mix, you cannot put wine in the old, new wine in old wineskins. Jesus said, no, that's bad theology. So you have the distinction there, the oddness of the letter. And you have the newness of the spirit, the gospel way. So the oddness of the letter is the Ten Commandments. This is what people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear this. The oddness of the letter are the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments are they that are the foundation of the covenant of the law. You can go and read it in Exodus. It is the old covenant as established in the law, the Ten Commandments. That's why in the Ark of the Covenant, we did not have 613 commandments there. We only had the two tablets of stone representing the ten. Representing the oddness of the letter. Okay? So there's no running away from it. Because very soon, Paul is going to talk about covetousness. Which is number ten, if, I be, if I'm right. Number ten commandment of the ten. Covetousness is part of the Decalogue. Okay? So the believer is said to serve God in a particular way as opposed to the other way. Because the latter kills. It bears fruit unto God. It bears death to the sinner before God. And that is say one cannot serve both God and the law, or serve God by both law and, and the spirit. That's what I meant to say. One cannot serve God by both law and the spirit. It's not an allowable combination. Okay? Now, here's another objection to the gospel truth. We're not going to go through all of Romans 7. We're going to stop midway somewhere. Uh, I think we are almost getting there. But here's another objection to the gospel truth. In that context of Romans, 
And again, it is about the law and its purpose. And Paul anticipates the objection either from his own internal logic or from some other person given what he has just taught as far as the relationship that the believer has to the law. Someone has to object to that. Okay. Because they are saying this law was bearing fruit unto death. How can the law bear fruit unto death? There has to be an objection. Someone has to raise an objection. I thought the law was for righteousness. How could it bear fruit unto death? Hear what Paul says. Romans 7, verse 7 to 13. So I think we finish at 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Since the law arouses the sinful passions of the members of the body, does that mean or follow that the law itself is sin? Because that is the natural reaction to those who do not understand the matter of law and sin. It sounds like a really powerful argument against God's grace to say, if the law, the very good law, is bringing about my own death through sin, then it must follow that the law itself is sin. Paul says, no, you don't get it. Let me tell you what's happening. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law is said, you shall not covet. Paul says he could not have known sin except through the commandment. And that now is telling us the function or the purpose of the law in redemptive history, in the historical context of salvation. Thou shalt not covet was given that it may arouse the sinful passions of covetousness that lie in sinners to expose them. Thou shalt not covet was given to discover to you and me your sin of coveting your neighbor's car. Like, oh man, that BMW is so nice. And I get a bonus, I'll buy mine. I wish it was mine. I love that boat. It's nice. It matches with the truck too. I actually saw one nice boat. Really nice, man. It's yellow. Where are we going? Well, yeah, we were going to Wisconsin. This guy was in a brand new F250 painted yellow, brand new boat, big one. Yellow, everything just matching so beautiful. I was like, man, I'm going to buy that one too. Sin exposed. <laughs> so there's no denying that if you're telling the truth, that's the function of the sin, of the function of the law. Here, this verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So sin took opportunity through the commandment. 
and produced in Paul and in every sinner all manner of evil desire. That's some glorious theology. Glorious teaching by the Holy Spirit. Sin takes opportunity of the commandment to not do something and causes you to do it. So the moment that I give you a commandment today, you're going to break it. Kathleen stopped sneezing. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> so sin, that's the relationship that the Holy Spirit is saying. So sin is there. It's lying dormant. But the moment that you bring a commandment to people and say, don't do it, they're going to start doing it. And that's how they get killed. Okay? So in other words, the law is there to expose that which is hidden in men and women, which is sin by causing them to desire more of the thing that they should not desire. They begin to just love it. I just love some ice cream. And that is very clear. Yeah, Sean was here last week and was it last week? Two weeks ago. Yeah, he went and ate all the ice cream by himself. He told me that. And this is very clear to me as a chemist. Because when we are doing our work and trying to identify things, there are just some things that are not invisible to the naked eye. And the only way that we can see what has happened is to use some light. You have to bring special light, a UV lamp or use iodine, whatever other developing agent we use to see the invisible. The thing is right there, but you can't see it. You have to bring something else. Bring the light, shine the light on it, and then you see it. Okay? And you see that when they do these uh, murder investigations, someone was killed and trying to look for blood and carpets and stuff like that. They put some agent there, then they bring the light. It makes it visible. That's exactly what the law does. It makes the invisible visible to you. Okay? So Paul says law and sin work together to produce death. death. That's what they do. Whenever you mix the two, you always have one outcome, is death. Okay, verse 9. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. <laughs> Paul says, I was once alive without the law. I did not feel condemned. My conscience was clear. It doesn't matter when he felt that, but the point remains that apart from the law, sin is dead. You cannot be guilty of something that you are not aware of until the commandment is given. Then suddenly you know that, oh, I just broke the law. So as soon as law is added, as an ingredient to one who is from the dust, one in Adam, there's always one outcome. Sin is revived and the person is condemned. That's what Paul means by I died. The person is condemned. The law revives sin and produces death in a sinner. Verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. What a huge surprise. Paul thought, as many Jews, 
that keeping the law was supposed to bring life to them. Because the law said, do this and you shall live. And so they were doing it. And so they thought they were alive. But Paul says, no, I died. Paul says, the very opposite happened. The very commandment, the very ten commandments, that people claim to be doing, thinking God will be pleased by them, they actually bring death. The law brings death. <laughs> you never hear this from these preachers who claim the moral law and stuff and who want to bring you back under the law. They never tell you that the law works wrath. Okay? So it doesn't matter how one wants to dress it up. The end result is the same. The commandment of the law brings death. Remember, Paul is writing as someone who is already saved. He didn't say, oh, the law used to bring death, but not anymore. Now he said, no, he says, the law brings death. But Paul, what happened? Verse 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Sin took occasion, took advantage of this commandment. How? It deceived Paul. It deceives, sin deceives the sinner to think that they can do what the law says. That's the deception of sin. But what happens at the end? Paul said, I died. It killed me. <laughs> sin killed him through the commandment. Sin deceived him to think that he could actually honor the law. But then the very law that he thought was doing, it brought condemnation to him. And many are deceived by their sin to think that they're doing the law because they do not hear what the law is saying. They do not hear the sentence of death that is being pronounced on them by the law. So if it is sin that is killing through the law, you see, sin requires the law to kill. Okay? And we shall expand more of this when we get back to this. I'll shorten it a little bit when we get to Romans 7. But I want to complete my arguments. You have these, it could be herbicides, it could be even drugs, that for you to get effectiveness from one drug, you have to have another one in combination. You take one and then you take the other. Okay. So if you're going to kill some plant, you're going to see that there will be some other drug in there that prevents some enzyme from acting and then the killer comes. So they work in combination. Okay. Or you hear when you take a prescription, they'll ask you, are you taking another medication? Because they don't want them to be mixed. Because if they get mixed, you're going to have a bad combination. Sin and law, guess what is going to happen? You're going to die. <laughs> okay. So they have to be separated. If you're taking this, they have to change the medication. Or they have to delay when you can start taking it. So that's very critical. And God is preaching. It's not man who invented this. God is preaching his truth. When you mix sin and law, the end of it is death. Okay? So the law is not the problem. That's why Paul is saying. Is going. Sin is the problem. 
the law is not sin, but where there's sin, when you bring the law, it only produces death. That's what Paul is arguing. Verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. That's how the law stands. It is holy, the commandment is holy and just and good. And that's exactly the reason why you don't want to be under the law. That is the reason why you don't want to be under the law, because it is holy, it is just and good. Here it is, verse 18. Has then that, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. <laughs> this is some crazy writing too. Uh, it, just, it just gets me excited. Paul says, the law is holy and good. Okay? So, how do you get death from something that is good? This is supposed to be your cure. How do you get killed by something that is good for you? How has that which is good become death to me? You see, this is very complicated teaching by Paul. That is why people cannot just come and say, oh, you are under the law. No! I need you to walk me through this. I need to understand. Has then what is good become death to me? Is the law just death in and of itself? That's what Paul is saying. Paul says, certainly not. So, how are we to understand this then? But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceeding, exceedingly sinful. Sin that it may appear to really be sin, to really be something serious, to be scared of, and cause men and women to say, War is me, for I am done was producing death in me, producing condemnation in me through what is good. In simple terms, Paul is saying, you cannot know a straight line unless you have a ruler. You cannot know that which is crooked unless you have something that is straight. So I discovered that I was crooked when they laid a straight ruler. I discovered that my spine, real story, was crooked when the chiropractor took an x-ray of it. And I realized, man, I was crooked like that. It's fine now. But something had to reveal the crookedness. So I would not have known that sin is that bad unless God had used something that is good to show it to me. And how? By killing me. <laughs> sin through the commandment through the ten commandments is made more sinful do you see the last verse verse 18 so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful so the law does not make sin less sinful 
The law does not curb sin. It increases it and exposes what is already there. Exposes and increases. That is the function of the law. To make sin exceedingly sinful, and that's very consistent teaching by Paul, and all these functions of the law are not made void by faith, but they are established. Because faith now comes and says to those who have been condemned by the goodness of the law, here is Christ. Here is the righteousness of God which answers to all that the law is demanding. Because when the law came to Christ, it did not find sin in him. It did not. It found the sin of other people that had been imputed to him. But in Christ, it did not find any sin. So the law itself could never condemn Christ. He was only condemned for the sake of others. So here is the righteousness that wipes away your sin. Here is the righteousness that propitiates for all your sins. And that to say, Romans 3.31 is not speaking to the continuity of the law, but to the function of the law in the gospel context. So to run to that text to prove continuity of the ministry of death on the redeemed. The law continues on the unredeemed. But on the redeemed, no. Okay? It is to expose one's failure to understand the gospel. Because this relationship between sin, law, and death, and gospel are very critical to telling the truth on Christ. So we have to make the distinctions. The redeemed are not under the law. They've been delivered from the law. Their marriage to Moses was cancelled by the death of Christ, that they may be married to Christ, bear fruit unto God. And being Christ, the Lord has made us the bride we have a new and better husband. And Christ does not cause death in us. He causes life in us. He doesn't send us back to Mount Sinai for sanctification where sinful passions of the members of the flesh are aroused because that's what the Lord does. He keeps us himself by his spirit and he causes us to bear fruit unto God by his spirit. And so run from Mount Sinai and remain encamped at Mount Calvary. That's our message. We are done. We are done, people. Praise God. That's a lot of work. But it has to be said. Okay, if anyone ever comes and calls you an antinomian, say, oh, these people, they are law haters. No, we're not law haters. Just telling men and women that the very law that they love produces death in them. Okay? And we have a better husband. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for these many wonderful words. We know, Lord, that much has been spoken. 
And we pray that your people have understood what they need to hear and always they have time to go back to the messages and re-listen. And we thank you, Lord, for being faithful to us, to give us our food, spiritual food in due time. We pray for all these we have gathered to listen to this message. Be with them in their going in and out. Keep them, uh, Lord, continue to encourage them by the truth of this gospel. Remember to tell them about their new husband, Christ Jesus, not for them to go back to the old husband, uh, Moses, who would produce death in them. We honor you, glorify you, be with us always. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good people. We'll see you later. Ha, ha, ha.